We gather because our God is a God of amazing grace, and one of the ways He shows us His grace is through speaking to us through His Word. As we prepare to hear from the Lord, let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we are grateful for Your grace. We are grateful for all the gifts You give us, from the gift of every day to the gift of eternal life, to the gift of relationship with you. And Lord, we ask that today, in this hour, in this moment, that you meet each one of us here and draw us closer to you. And if we are at a point where our spiritual lives are vibrant and overflowing, then, then fill us even fuller so that we can give to others. Lord, if we are in a gray and difficult season, then then show us your light and renew our hope. And Father, if we are wandering in the dark, bring us to you. Father, wherever we are, we pray that you meet us with your word and with your spirit. Amen. So before we read our passage for today, which is going to be from Jeremiah 29, I want to, again, give a little bit of a sense of why are we doing this sermon series, what's, what's the goal, what's the reason? And as as an entry point for that, Laura and I went to the Gospel Coalition this past week. It's a big conference, been in Indianapolis the last few years. And the big theme of the conference worked around the book of Exodus and, and asked questions about wilderness. And if I could perhaps summarize the, the uh, conference in a, in a sentence or two. There were all kinds of options, all kinds of things. It's a thousands and thousands of people conference, so a lot of diversity. But if I was going to summarize the main theme, I would say it was people saying, look, we're in a different place than we used to be. As believers in Jesus, as a church, we are in a wilderness time. And so how do we respond to that? Or to put it another way, we are exiles, And how do we live as exiles in a world where we belong, but also where we don't quite belong? In one of the sessions I went to, they they talked about a number of of stances, of postures we can take toward the world and that Christians have tended to take, and some are maybe more helpful, some are less, but one, one is to compromise, to say, well, if we just give in on this and this and this, well, then maybe finally the culture will listen to us and we can draw them closer to Jesus. And, and maybe there's times for us to be as winsome as possible, but compromise often leads to giving up the gospel. And then there's the option to withdraw, to to form monasteries and to go back and step away from our culture and put all the evil out there. But the thing is that we bring our own evil with us. And and so that doesn't really always work either. And another, another option that I think we see more and more these days is to attack is to go out there and and fight the culture wars and beat people down and make sure that we get our way. And and there are times for us to be prophetic, but attacking people is not always the way to go. And then they they mention the idea of slander, and, and I think more and more within the church even, we see Christians slandering each other. You don't do it my way. You need to do it my way. And out in the broader culture, we see more and more of groups going after each other and increasing polarization. And how, how do we live? And then the suggestion of this particular session was that we live as guests, that we live as people who are there, but not as if we own the place, but as if we are, we are there to have a good time. And not a good time like a party, but, 
but to be pleasant guests, to develop good relationships, to connect well with people, and not to give up who we are, but to winsomely, clearly, and without compromise, say, this is who we are, and this is who Christ is, and this is how we live together. Now, there's a there's a lot of challenges to living as exiles these days. And last week we talked about that a bit. We're going to keep talking about that along with the theme of how we be at home, how we live settled good lives in a time when we are so often in the wilderness and don't quite know what to do. So that's why we're doing this sermon series. And I picked Jeremiah 29 because this is one of the key Old Testament texts to reflect on on God's mission, on God's work, on God's plan for for how history will go and for how we ought to participate. So today we're going to read Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14, and the next week we're going to finish off with Jeremiah 29, 15 to 23. But now hear the word of the Lord for us today. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. So the first step we're going to make in the sermon this morning is actually to take a step back and reflect on the setting into which Jeremiah wrote these words. So, So the first thing is a question. Should we assimilate to Babylon? Should we assimilate to Babylon? Now, I'm going to show my geek card for a minute here and nerd out. In the Star Trek universe... All right, you can laugh at me. In the Star Trek universe, there is this particular species called the Borg. And they're cyborgs, cyborgs, Borg. They're half, kind of half robot, kind of half human. And their, their thing is that they're going to go around and they're going to assimilate. They're going to make all these other cultures, all these other species, part of the Borg collective. And so when they show up at your space, whatever, or your planet, they have this line about how they will appreciate your cultural and whatever diversity and how they're going to incorporate that into their broader thing. And then they land with a very robotic, you will be assimilated. And then they walk up to you and they jab you with some sort of robotic device and they insert nanoborgs and they take you over. And you stop being who you are and you become just another, just another meaningless, worthless cause or cog in the Borg collective. You will be assimilated. And when we think of assimilation to our culture, we might think of, we might think of that. And there are ways that, that even looking at Babylon, that God's people experience that sort of violent assimilation. These people who Jeremiah is writing to had been carried away from Jerusalem and many of their families had been slaughtered, their social institutions had been destroyed, their nation had been brought into the Babylonian Empire. And yeah, yeah, they'd lost. Yeah, Babylon was violent and rough and and hard to live with. But I think there's a different type of assimilation that is probably more the problem for us today, not the someone walks up to you and forces you to comply, but more of, a, more of a peer pressure, more of a social pressure, more of a, a gradual slope to completely losing our identity. 
C.S. Lewis has a series of space, space, well, it's called the Space Trilogy, and it's science fiction books. And two of them are set on different planets, but the final one, and by far the longest, is called That Hideous Strength, and it's set completely on Earth. That Hideous Strength. And it's actually a really trendy book these days. So if you want to be trendy in kind of theological church circles, pick up That Hideous Strength. But there's a character in that book. And he's a really regular guy. His name is Mark Studdock. And he's a professor, just beginning his career, finding his way, struggling a little bit. But he gets invited to consider a new position with a national institute, with a very prestigious national institute, where the salary is beyond his wildest dreams, where the power he will exercise is incredible, where, where he will be part of reshaping the nation. And so Mark goes out to the National Institute's headquarters to, to check this job out and see if he wants it. And he gets sucked into the things there. And, and it's wonderful. You can have all the food and all the drink you want. They take care of everything for you. And, and he becomes part of the society of powerful people and gets drawn more and more into the National Institute. And, and pretty soon he's running in the, in the real corridors of power. He's hanging out with the real power brokers in this National Institute who are, who are reshaping the world. And he feels wonderful, and he feels like finally, finally he's made it. And there's a number of inflection points as things go downhill for Mark, but, but there's one particular inflection point where he gathers in the Institute's library with a group of, group of the very upper-level management people. And they're drinking, and they're laughing, and they're talking about different strategies and things. And, and after two or three drinks, someone leans over a little bit and starts talking convivially with Mark and a couple other people and says, so... There's going to be some riots in this university town tonight. And this is how they're going to go, and this is where they're going to start, and these are going to be the results. And what we need to do here and now, what we need to do is get the newspaper articles written tomorrow so that this group will react in this way, and this group will react in this way, and this group will react in this way. And what we need to do is move these things forward so that the National Institute can gain this type of power. And Mark gives a, a little bit a little bit alcoholized, shall we say, a little bit drunk. So he doesn't quite track what they're saying, but as the conversation goes on, he stops them and he says, wait a minute, you're talking about what's going to happen and we're supposed to write the articles tonight even though we aren't there. How are we going to do this? And the head of the Institute's security slaps Mark on the back and says, oh, you simpleton, we're arranging the riots, obviously. This is all part of the plan. And yeah, a few people are going to die. And yeah, there's going to be all kinds of destruction and all kinds of uncertainty, but that's going to advance the National Institute's agenda. So let's say you and I grab a pot of coffee and we go out and we write up the articles for tomorrow morning's papers. And at that moment, Mark has a choice. He can walk out of the room, he can walk out of the Institute, and his career and his life will be in shambles, and, and he will probably never work any kind of meaningful job again, but he could do that. Or he can finish off his drink, go grab that pot of coffee and go upstairs and write the articles in support of destroying a civil society and creating a more totalitarian state. And what would you do? And do you really want to know? Because I think what a lot of us would do is finish the drink and grab the pot of coffee and go upstairs and assimilate to the culture. And that's exactly what the people of Jeremiah's time were facing with the Babylonians. Yeah, the Babylonians were violent, and they would, they would tear down your city, and they would take you into exile. But once they got you in Babylon, once they got you in exile, then they would say, you can have anything you want. 
All the best government jobs are open to you. You can live in the nicest neighborhoods. Your kids can go to the nicest school. They can have a world-class education. You can have everything you dream of. It's all available to you. And they weren't lying. They were telling the absolute truth. But the sting in the tail is that all you have to do is give up everything of who you are. All you have to do is worship our gods and, and adopt our ways and do, do things according to our plan, and then you can have it all. And you genuinely could have it all if you did that. If you think of the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, this is, this is their kind of story where they were brought there and they were offered all kinds of incredible positions, but all they had to do was not pray to the Lord. All they had to do was bow the knee to a foreign idol. That's all. Just give up everything and you can have everything back. And that's a deal that our culture and every culture offers to us as Christians too. You can have it all. You can have the biggest house. You can have the nicest job. You can, you can have the life of your dreams. All you have to do is do it our way. All you have to do is assimilate. And just like with Babylon, there are things that we face these days, and some of them are good things that we can embrace about our culture. Some of them are neutral things that could go either way. And some of them are simply terrible things. And yet we are pressured and pressured and pressured to adopt all of these things. And let's, let's think about some of the good, the neutral, and the bad for just a moment. Our culture, probably the most of any culture in the history of the world, is big on individual opportunity and, and human rights and freedom. And, and those are wonderful things that for us to celebrate, that people as God's image bearers are valued and respected and that we can, we can live in freedom here. That's good. Neutral. We live in a digital Babylon where we all pretty much have smartphones and where we have access to the internet 24-7 and where, where there are incredible things we can learn. We don't even have to think anymore. We can just look it up on Wikipedia. It's wonderful. It's amazing. But it also tends to make us distracted and shallow and always running from one thing to the other and never actually being reflective or going deeper as people. But I, I think that's a neutral thing in some respects. There are good and bad ways to deal with that. But perhaps the bad, one example, as Americans, as Christians in America, we think that we have a right, not a hope, a right to have a life as if we were in heaven. We think that we have the right to have a life that is free from trouble, where we have a, a glorious mansion and perfect families and great jobs and where everything is exactly how we want it to be. We think we deserve this. And so when we experience trouble, we don't just experience the trouble, we experience anger at how, well, we shouldn't be the ones who suffer. We should be free from all this. And that is never a promise that we are given. That is a, a lie that our culture feeds us. So no, we shouldn't assimilate to Babylon, and yet we do. And so often we are unreflective and not careful and not discerning with how we adopt the ways of the world around us. And that is unwise. If we just drift along, then we will tend to drift away from our Lord and Savior and drift into whatever the people around us do and think. And so it is always worth reflecting, what are our loyalties? What are our commitments? What are the bargains that we are making to have our, our houses and our cars and our prestige and our status and our whatever it might be? What bargains are we making? And I can assure you that we are all making bargains. 
So what do we do? What do we do? And the answer, which should not surprise you, the answer the text gives in light of the temptation to assimilate is to seek the Lord. To seek the Lord. There is that that famous verse where the Lord says that He has plans to prosper His people. And then we're called to seek Him. Now, there is, there is a problem with how we hear the promise here in Jeremiah 29, 11. This is, this is a text that shows up on graduation mugs and posters and inspirational things all over the place. But we tend to treat it like, like Jeremiah 29, 11 is a, is a genie in a lamp, that we can rub the verse, we can rub the lamp, and Jesus will show up and he'll give us whatever we wish for. You want a happy life? Boom. You want a promotion? Boom. You want this? You want that? Rub Jeremiah 29, 11. Jesus the genie shows up and you get what you want. And that is a dangerous and tragic misreading of this verse because you see it just leaves us stuck in our moment. It leaves us without a bigger picture. It leaves us with, with just our own resources of what we want. And what the Lord calls us to is something literally infinitely more. What the Lord calls us to is His very self. The Lord's plan for His people is to bring them back to Himself. Not just to have them have nice gardens and nice houses and nice families, though though if you were here last week, you heard that the Lord did tell His people to develop those in Babylon, and the expectation was He would bless that. Yes, the Lord provides all those things, but really what's, what's at the very center of it all? And what's at the very center of it all is the Lord. Now remember, these are exiles in Babylon, the, the, epic, the epic city of sin, the place where God's people would feel like they didn't belong, the place where they would feel like God is distant. And what the Lord says is, seek me and you will find me. Seek me and I will be found by you. And that is the heart of the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11. Not that you get whatever you think you want, but that you get your real heart's desire. That even if you don't realize what you really, really want, when you come to the Lord and you seek Him, you get what you really, really want. Deeper fulfillment, deeper hope, deeper peace and prosperity than you would ever have gotten, even if you got everything you thought you wanted. But we live in an age, just like the Israelites of Jeremiah's time did, when we don't feel... We don't feel like God is there. I think if we had all lived, let's just say 500 years ago, but you can pick your number, we would have lived with a sense that of course God is there, of course God is real, of course, of course, of course. But these days we've lost that. And I think all of us live with some level of a sense of of God's absence or at least questions about whether God is really present. And what this text invites us to do is, is having recognized that, to simply seek the Lord. And I'm not now going to give you any incredible new things you haven't heard before because a lot of seeking the Lord comes back to the same things. But I want to give you a couple ways to to consider how you might grow closer to the Lord. And one way, and this is going back to last week to the beginning of Jeremiah 29, I think one way to seek the Lord is actually to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city around us. One way to seek the Lord is to try to be His representatives, to be His people, to be, to be His presence for the world around us. And as we follow the Lord in obedience to Him, we become more like Him and we grow closer to Him. So that's one way. 
And the second way I want to invite you to is, is to clear out the clutter in your lives. The Israelites who this letter went to were, were cleaned out from Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, and, and some of the stuff they left behind probably was best left behind. And what are things in your life that you might leave behind? And they might even be good things. You might have some devotional patterns or, or you might have some spiritual expectations kind of hovering over you that actually aren't all that helpful. And maybe there is some things that, that you've been just defaulting to that you don't actually need to keep doing and that aren't actually helping you seek the Lord. Let them go. Clean out the clutter. Clean out the empty ritual and, and find ways to draw closer to the Lord. And then, and then third, seeking the Lord is... Well, simply seek the Lord. What we pay attention to, especially what we worship, reshapes who we are. So if you want to draw closer to the Lord, then I invite you simply to pay attention to Him. And maybe that means some of the classic things, have a Bible reading time every morning and pray every evening, and and that's maybe an option. Or maybe you can grab your smartphone and you can find some apps and you can find ways that your phone, instead of distracting you into social media or bills to pay or meaningless emails or whatever, instead can be pulling you closer to the Lord, can be giving you a Bible verse or or giving you a sermon or giving you some reading that you might not have gotten into unless it just automatically popped up day by day. Use the tools you have. And I I know whenever I list out some ways to to grow spiritually, there are some people in the congregation who will say, I tried that, it didn't work for me. Okay, try something else. We live in an age where we have a million bajillion options to grow spiritually, so, so embrace that. Find a way that works for you to be paying more and more attention to the Lord. What in your life is is not helping you draw closer to the Lord? Push that more to the edge of your life. What in your life is helping you draw closer to the Lord? Bring that more into the center of your life. And then we come to our last point, and hopefully the briefest of the three. But know this, the Lord brings us back. Know the plan. And the Lord's plan is to give us hope and a future, to bring us back from exile, to bring us home to bring us home. Now, it's interesting here that the Lord promises that in 70 years, he'll he'll overthrow Babylon and bring God's people home. And I doubt for many of us, 70 years feels fast, right? 70 years, 70 years from now? Who even knows what the world is gonna look like? But what what if someone came and told you that 70 years from now, the United States would not exist? Would that be utterly shocking? That's what Jeremiah's letter is saying to the people of Israel and Babylon, that that the greatest power, the greatest nation the world had probably seen up to that point would disappear in just a few decades. That's incomprehensible. That couldn't possibly happen. And yet the Lord promises his people that that will happen. Babylon will fall. He will bring his people back. and, And the only way the people can be assured of that is by trusting in the Lord, because they couldn't see that. And yet it happened. Babylon falls. The Lord brings his people back. And that's a small picture. 
That's a small picture of the whole story of the world, that that we look at the world just like people have ever since the time of Adam and Eve, and the world is powerful, and the world is twisted, and it seems like there is no way to fix it. And yet the consistent story of the Bible is that there is a way to fix it, that God is at work. And we see when Jesus comes that he, he gives us glimpses of this coming kingdom of God making it right, that he, he heals people and he delivers them from demons and, and he changes everything. And yet the kingdom is an already and not yet kingdom and so we don't yet see Babylon's final fall. But this text promises us that Babylon will fall, that the kingdoms of the world will pass away and that God will make things right. And so we live in that hope. We live in that hope. Now I remember, and this was quite a few years ago, I saw part of a TV show, and all, all I remember is this 30-second, one-minute segment, so you're not going to get a lot of details. But I very clearly remember there was this lady who had disappeared, and there were a couple detectives who were kind of her friends who were looking for her, and this lady's ex-husband showed up with his checkbook, and that dates it a little bit because he showed up with a checkbook. And he said, all right, guys, I want you to find my ex-wife. And I want you to have all the resources you need, so I'm going to give you a blank check. There's a blank check for you. Do whatever you need to do to find her. And the detective said, no thanks. And as my maybe 12-year-old self said, if someone hands you a blank check, you always say yes. Right? You always say, what? what?" But they didn't want the blank check because all the blank check came with, all the blank check came with was a promise that they would work for him that they would report to him, that they would do things his way. So yeah, they'd have a blank check, but all that meant is that they'd have to give up any hope of actually doing the investigation and looking for their friend in the way that, in the way that was right, in the way that would actually work. Blank checks always, always come with strings attached. On one of the one of the uh, sessions that I went to this last week at the Gospel Coalition Conference had a pastor who who talked about some of the hardships of ministry, and I think, it, I think it's representative probably of the hardships of just being a Christian these days, that, that we're all tired of the drama. The last few years have been exhausting, and, and a lot of people just want to tune out. They just want to be done with all the stuff and all the stress and all the ways that culture is pushing on us, and, and it's really hard to be resilient. And it probably is not going to get easier in the coming years. And then this pastor Turn to, turn to the real question. It's not how hard is it. It's not what challenges are we facing. It's not what would be the easier path. But the real question is, what is Jesus worth? What is Jesus worth? And is Jesus worth a little bit? Is Jesus worth an hour of your week or a couple hours of your week? Or is Jesus worth a lot? Is Jesus worth reorganizing your life around and putting up with some trouble? Or is Jesus... And here he took, he took us to Philippians 3, 7, and 8, and he talked about, is Jesus surpassingly worth it? Is Jesus worth more than anything and everything else? And I want to invite you to reflect on that. In your life, both in how you think and in how you believe and in how you live, is Jesus surpassingly worth it? Babylon, the world, comes to us, and it offers us a blank check. And all we need to do to get that check is to give up everything. But the Lord comes to us, and I'm going to update the metaphor a little bit now. The Lord comes to us, and in Jesus, he gives us all his passwords. 
He gives us all his passwords, and if we log into the Lord's bank account, there is an infinity symbol. God literally has everything to give us, and in Jesus, he has given it to us. In Christ, we have everything. And so we can live in this culture not not withdrawing and not assimilating, but living as gracious exiles, as guests, and as people who want to bring others to Jesus. So today, to strengthen our faith, to remind us of God's grace, to help us experience His presence, we are going to be guests at His meal, at the Lord's Supper. And our hope and our prayer and the promise God has given us is that through His Word and through His Supper, He will strengthen us to live at home as exiles. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your love and Your grace. We are grateful for how you speak to us, and we pray that you feed each one of us as we have need. Lord, give us, well, as we have need and as we have ability, give us of your word, give us of your spirit, feed us, draw us closer to you. Amen.